Welcome to a podcast of Wyoming Chronicle, where we tell the stories of Wyoming in a weekly program of interviews with newsmakers, artists, innovative thinkers, and unique Wyoming personalities. To learn more, visit us at wyomingpbs.org. If it happened in Wyoming, likely the history is preserved at the Wyoming State Archives in Cheyenne. We'll visit the State Archives to learn about its function and also hear some unique and surprising history that archivists have discovered through the years, including a late 1800s Rollins plastic surgeon, a late 1800s device designed to raise ships in the ocean, and more. The Wyoming State Archives, next on Wyoming Chronicle. Funding for this program is made possible in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council, helping Wyoming take a closer look at life through the humanities, thinkwhy.org, and by the members of the Wyoming PBS Foundation. Thank you for your support. And as we begin our discussion on the Wyoming State Archives, we want to learn what the archives is. And with us is Kathy Marquis, the state archivist here in Cheyenne. Kathy, welcome to Wyoming Chronicle. Thank you so much, and thank you for pronouncing my name right. <laughs> I, was, I was cute about it, so oh, were you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, had some, I had some good advice. Excellent. We're going to get to some amazing stories that your staff has found in the archives here in just a bit. Mm -hmm. But I want to give our viewers a chance to really understand a little bit more about what the archives is, its role in preserving history, and how they can access. Great, thank you. Um, so the Wyoming State Archives is charged by statute with preserving the records of state government. And we also have many records of local government here. Um, we don't take everything. We are interested in preserving things that have historical value or legal value or ongoing administrative value. Um, so we retain records about 44,000 cubic feet at the moment of archival records um, that document the history of the state, tell the story of the people, tell the story of how the government functioned over time. And we also, I'll just put a plug in here, we also have another 44,000 cubic feet, that's a box of records, that are in our records management center. And those are records that have to be kept for certain periods of time, but not forever. Um, so those are kept here and then we we destroy them at certain um, periods of time when their retention periods have been met. And you have many other things like newspaper. Um, yes. Uh, all of Wyoming's newspapers or <laughs> microfilm here available to be viewed and researched. Mm -hmm. How do people interact with you? Um, if they really need to understand something, maybe it could be in their family history mm -hmm. or their town's history or w with research that they're doing for whatever reason. What should they do? They can call us. They can email us. They can actually still fax us. Um, and we are available um, every weekday to answer questions. Um, we get a lot more questions by email these days than we do by phone, but we still get a lot of phone questions. You can also just walk right in. There are no appointments necessary. You just come in and ask your question, and we'll do our best to answer at the time or get back to you. And you can also just plan to spend the day, which sometimes people do, and just digging through materials that either tell about the history of your town or your church or your family, depending on what you're looking for. And what sort of materials might people see if they 
come to the archivist offices right here in Cheyenne? Um, well, we're sitting in front of some amazing older photos. We have lots of photographs of, the of people and places in the state. And a lot of those photographs, maybe about 10%, have been scanned or available to you, as I like to say, in your pajamas. Online. Um, online, exactly. Um, and the same is true for some of the records of the governors. You can get access to those through our website. Most of the rest of them are available by coming in or by asking us. And we, sometimes we can scan them and send them to you, or we can help you figure out which ones you might want to look at when you come in. And that's 90%. Um, um, of the photographs, of the photographs yeah. 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 Is the digital world been helpful or has it been a hindrance? And I ask that question, I'm just thinking of um, newspapers, for mm -hmm. example. Well, on their websites now often, you'll see stories that never make it into print. Exactly. And you have a wonderful record of everything that's printed, but what about the digital world? Um, well, we have a digital archives where we're capturing the digital records of state government and more and more local government. Um, but the, you're right about the newspapers, and that's something that I'm working with the state librarian on. Um, we realize that the, the news world is going online. Um, so, yes, we're microfilming newspapers, and we'll continue to do that for as long as newspaper print is out there but we need to start looking at the digital version of newspapers. And um, I think I mentioned to you earlier that at least maybe once a year, twice a year, we get a notification that there are certain newspapers that are not publishing that day anymore, or they're not publishing at all anymore, and they're combining with another newspaper. So we're very aware of the digital world, and we are, um, I would say, ahead of the game in preserving it. When I talk to people from other state archives, there's still some that are saying, well, yeah, we're going to get to that. Well, we got to it over a decade ago, and we're preserving those records now. That's good news, because online they could literally disappear overnight. Um, yes, yeah, and we have a very secure database where they get saved. Tell me the intersection between, for example, the Wyoming State Archives and the American Heritage Center. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's wonderful records at, at each place. How does that work? Um, well, um, I would say that we are uh, collaborators, and we often, for example, get offered, um, and one of the things that I didn't mention before is that we have what we archivists call manuscript collections. So those are things that are not official government records, but they are the papers of individuals or <clears throat> individuals' photographs, things like that. Um, sometimes we get offered collections that aren't quite appropriate for us, and often the first place that I'll contact is the American Heritage Center. And they have also contacted us about collections that they think have a really strong state government link and they think would be more appropriate for us. So we talk all the time. Probably with local museums too, mm -hmm. I, I imagine. Absolutely. Well, we have a lot that we want to get to with mm -hmm. some of the more amazing and unique stories um, um, that we want to show mm -hmm. our, our viewers. But we appreciate your time, Kathy. We've had an opportunity to show our viewers the massive amounts of records that um, are under your um, purview, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it is kind of stunning. But we encourage people, if they have questions or if they need to do research, to contact you at any time. Absolutely. We love to get questions. Thanks for joining us on Wyoming Chronicles. Thank you very much. And as we continue our discussion of the Wyoming State Archives, it's our pleasure to be joined by Susie Taylor, a reference archivist here at the Wyoming State Archives in Cheyenne. Susie, welcome to Wyoming Chronicle. Thank you for having me. This is the fun part of the show. And yes. what we've asked you to do, and you've done such a great job, is to 
find some of the more unique, amazing, surprising stories that are here at the archives and, and share them with us. And we're going to give you every opportunity to do that. And we might as well just jump right in. Wonderful. Well, where, where do you want to start? Well, I think we should start with the great plastic surgeon mm. that was in Rollins, if I yes. recall, yes. before the turn of the 1900s even. Holy mm -hmm. smokes. Yeah. So right around 1886, um, Dr. Thomas McGee, who um, may be better known for his uh, work with Big Nose George, um, he actually helped a, uh, a gentleman who had attempted to take his life um, and had kind of botched it. Um, and he did one of the first facial re reconstructions in Wyoming. Um, and over the course of almost two years, um, he did 20-some uh, surgeries. Um, this is in the late 1800s. Yes. <laughs> it's so hard to imagine this. Yes. I mean, you know, he's doing what, um, what doctors today would do in um, very clean uh, surgical suites um, using modern um, anesthesia. He, he used chloroform. Um, they tried ether, but the guy woke up mid-surgery, so they, they switched over to uh, chloroform. Um, but, you know, he used silk sutures and uh, played around with skin grafts. And I thought, you know, I think the, um, the results kind it's, of speak for themselves. It's amazing it what he was able really to do. It is really surprising yeah. what he was able to do. Um, so, so very good. Um, let, let's just have you continue on. Absolutely. In whichever, whichever order you would like. Oh, boy. Um, well, let's, uh, let's go up to the north, uh, northeast corner of the state and talk about Hank Mason's bear. Um, so this is one of my favorite pictures in the collection. It shows um, these three gentlemen recreating um, uh, a fight with a bear. And um, the story behind it is, is just fascinating. There was um, there's a man by the name of Hank Mason who was one of the first white settlers up in the Newcastle area. And for a while, he was, um, he was a prospector and a miner, um, but he later opened up a sawmill. And while he was up there, he, um, he and his new wife um, uh, woke up one day to bear tracks outside their cabin. And as he was going to um, his sawmill, he decided to um, track the bear and see if he could um, make the bear go away. Um, and his wife got really nervous because she didn't hear from him. And finally, um, she went out looking for him the next day and unfortunately found you know, her husband dead um, because he had been mauled by this bear. So she runs to um, some of the neighbors, and um, a group of men start out after this bear, um, find the bear. Um, you know, the story is just plain in the snow. Um, they can tell exactly what happened. He had tried to climb a tree. It hadn't worked out so well for him. Um, and he had had a fight with a bear. His, his gun had uh, misfired. Um, he'd managed to wound the bear, but the bear um, got him first. Um, and then they were able to track the bear down, um, and they did uh, uh, go ahead and put the bear down. Um, but <laughs> they took the bear um, back to town and had it stuffed, 
and recreated this this amazing <laughs> shot. That's, a, that's of, the most interesting part. Why do you recreate this? Right. <laughs> you see him down there laying. Yeah. Uh. Um, so the uh, the epic battle, um, but it's one of the very interesting things about this story was how the story was told later. Um, you know, people often wonder if all of the stories in an archive are true, and they are to some extent. Um, every once in a while you do find a, you know, a straight up lie, but often um, the misinformation is due more to um, misremembering than it is to... People think they're remembering correctly, yeah. but maybe they're not. Yeah. Clouded over time a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes people are just trying to recall stories that they'd heard or things that they'd lived, and um, the bear is one of those things. You know, in some accounts, this happened three years after it actually did, or three years before. Sometimes the bear was nine hundred pounds and nine feet tall. That is a big bear. It is, but that's no nine foot tall bear that the bears you know six foot tall um some some accounts said that it was um it was 600 pounds and kind of emaciated um so you know it, do we it, know if that bear of, exists today you know from what i've heard the bear was in a bar for a long time but then the bar burned down um so the bear no longer exists but um Supposedly, there's a bunch of pictures um, of people also recreating the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the killing of the Hank Mason uh -huh. there. Um, continue on. Absolutely. Um, so let's uh. go to Saratoga. Um, so one of the staff favorites. Or the ocean. Yes, well, or right? the ocean, you know, whichever. Um, so one of the staff favorite stories is the invention of Fred Kint. Um, he, in about 1895, um, Kint was living in Saratoga, and he invented um, what he called the apparatus for preventing the sinking of ships and for raising sunken vessels. And it was pretty much a, uh, a large canvas balloon that had a rubber balloon inside of it, and it was to be attached to a sunken vessel, and um, a charge would inflate the balloon, and that would bring whatever was on the bottom up to the top. They tested it in Wyoming. They did. They tested it in 20 feet of water in the Platte River <laughs> outside of Saratoga and deemed it a huge success, you know, because if it worked in the river in Saratoga, it was going to work in the ocean. Of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Kent went to um, New York to try and get um, some financial backers. And the story that was reported in the papers was that all of these New York financiers um, were just horrified because, you know, if this invention worked so well, that was going to be the end of maritime um, insurance, and that just wasn't going to fly in New York. Um, <laughs> but it could, it was proven to be able to raise a significant amount of weight. It did. The, they first were going to um, weigh down uh, a boat in the river uh, with large rocks and pull that up. And they ended up uh, finding a large boulder that was four or five thousand pounds, they estimated. And they attached the apparatus to it, and it did go ahead and raise it up, and they brought it over to the shore, and 500 people watched and cheered. 
we make rain. Yes, we make rain. So during um, the late 1880s, early 1890s, um, there was a gentleman named Frank Melbourne who was going around the Plains States, um, and he um, built himself as a rainmaker. He said that he could make rain whenever, um, and he demonstrated in Kansas and I believe in Colorado, but definitely in Wyoming. When he got to Cheyenne um, during the summer of 1891, um, he uh, he was telling his story and trying to get um, get some financial backers um, here in Wyoming. And um, there was a gentleman who um, decided to kind of be his manager. And so he started producing these lovely little booklets um, talking about how Melbourne can make it rain. Um, he helped to uh, negotiate a couple of contracts with the city of Cheyenne um, to create rain. Um, and supposedly, according to the newspapers, he did actually produce rain. Um, the weather station reports are a little bit more sketchy. Um, the newspaper claims that it was this huge downpour after a long drought. We still have a little bit of verifying to do there, but, um, but it's a good story, if nothing else. It is. Yeah. Continue. Absolutely. Well, um, so as long as we're on weather, um, we should probably talk about the winter of 1886-1887. Or what we think is... We th what we the think. The winter of yeah. 1886, 87. Um, so we know from the history books that um, the winter of 1886, 87 um, kind of spelled the end of um, the cattle baron era and the end of the open range. Um, supposedly, um, blizzard after blizzard after blizzard hit that winter um, and it followed um, a large drought the summer before. So we happen to have um, National Weather Service um, uh, weather report books um, going back to that time period. So we pulled them out and expected to find daily observations. And instead, we find these large red lines that say, no observations kept, the observer is sick. And it, the observer ended up getting sick with a bacterial infection in, um, in October of 1886 and was sick all the way through until March of 1887 when he proceeded to die um, and unfortunately since he died in March of 1886 um, the the gentleman that came um, had to update the books and he had no observations to update it with and so he just put big red lines through each month <laughs> um, so we don't know how bad the winter actually was um, because there's no observations a yellow line controversy. Uh, yes, so um, Wyoming has always been very proud of states' rights, and the 1950s were no exception. Um, so in starting in 18, well, starting at least as early as um, 1938, uh, Wyoming's highways were marked with yellow paint. Um, the rationale behind it was that yellow was easier to see in a blizzard, and you know, everybody knows that ground blizzards are pretty common around here. Um, and it didn't seem like a big deal uh, until um, the federal government decided that they were going to uh, provide money for the interstate highway system. 
So the, the interstate comes through and the federal government says, we're only going to give you money if you, um, if you adhere to certain conditions. And one of those is that the marking is consistent across the country. Um, and at that point, they had decided that the markings on the interstate had to be white. Of course, Wyoming has had yellow lines now for 20 years. And they, um, Wyoming decides that they're not sure that they want to, they want to follow those. They believe that yellow um, lines would be safer. And um, they didn't really want the federal government to tell them what to do. Kind of having common sense, maybe? Yes. <laughs> yes. There was, there was um, one uh, legislator who sponsored a bill in 18, or I'm sorry, in 1959. So Senator Barlow out of Sublette County uh, was a co-sponsor on a bill in 1959 that the legislature passed, um, uh, specifying that all roads in Wyoming had to have yellow stripes. And this was in direct conflict with what the federal government was asking. And um, Barlow said, you know, maybe some people want to wear a Palm Beach suit all the time, but that just doesn't mean they're satisfactory here in Wyoming. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning that, you know, because, point across, sure. yeah, because white lines might, um, might work well in other states, but they weren't going to work well in Wyoming. Um, now, the federal government responded by saying, we're not going to give you funding? Is Correct. that what they decided? Correct. Mm -hmm. um, the federal government pretty well said, well, that's fine. You can have yellow, but you aren't going to get our money. Um, and so there was a large, there was a big, huge debate. The governor um, was a part of the debate, a bunch of legislators, locals, the Highway Commission, Highway Department. Um, and finally, they did relent and changed all of the lines to, um, to white. But it was all a moot point in 1971 when the federal government came back and said, okay, so uniform traffic laws, we want everybody to have yellow center lines because it's easier to see. And Wyoming went, yeah, we've been telling you that. So all the lines went back to It takes a little bit of time for good ideas to have some traction every now and then. We have to talk about Hattie Durbin. So Hattie Durbin was a young housewife in, um, in the early 1870s um, here in Cheyenne. And her husband um, decided to go up to the Black Hills um, to uh, participate in the gold rush. He was involved in um, a banking venture up there as well. Um, and there was a partner bank down here in Cheyenne um, and then the bank up in Deadwood. And so her husband, Thomas, um, got on the stage and rode from Cheyenne to Deadwood. Um, and a few months later, Hattie decided she just couldn't, she couldn't stay here in Cheyenne anymore. She was going to go to Deadwood. So she and her uh, two-year-old two child um, got on the stage here in Cheyenne. Um, and as they were getting ready to pull out, she's asked to carry a package as well. And she's handed just a, a little package um, and asked to keep it in the bottom of her bag, and not tell anyone about it. And then, you know, the whip cracks and they're off. At the first stage stop, she hears, um, starts hearing stories about the stage that went right before her. There was a regular stage that ran between Cheyenne and Deadwood, um, and it wasn't always the same physical stagecoach. They had a couple of them. Um, and the one that had just gone down 
the trail before them had been attacked and the driver had been killed um, because um, the road agents had thought that they were carrying $10,000 in currency. Um, and Hattie suddenly realizes what's in that package. She's pretty sure that she's now carrying 10 grand in currency on a stage mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and somebody is looking for it. Um, so she then send, spends the next two days um, just in a state of panic. She can't tell anybody about this. She, she keeps her bag right beside her. She tries to play it cool. She makes it to Deadwood, you know, at every stop, you know, people are talking about, oh my gosh, did you hear Johnny Slaughter was killed? And um, sometimes there's, um, there's guys on the trail that um, are claiming that it was, um, that, you know, it wouldn't have happened had they known that it was, it was Johnny driving it, but, you know, somebody's still got to have this money and she's, you know, just sitting there, you know, panicking internally. Um, she makes it to Deadwood and like flies off of the stage, hands this package to her husband. She's like, we have to get rid of this now. And it turns out that, yes, yeah, she had been carrying that 10 grand. Um, you know, Deadwood has had all the gold they could ever want, but they had no way to turn that into paper currency. Cheyenne had all the paper currency and had access to um, places to, to deposit the gold. So there had to be regular um, travel down the trail. Um, following the death of Johnny Slaughter, um, the, uh, the stage uh, coaches were then fitted out with what was called a treasure box, and it was pretty much a locking box that could be um, used to transport goods like this to keep them more secure. Susie, I want to thank you um, for doing this research for us, and we know that there are many, many more stories. So the good news is, is that we're going to come back and visit periodically if you'll, if you'll be so kind to give us some more time. Well, I would love to share more stories. Pretty much every box you open in the archives um, has a story in it, at least one. So thank you so much for your time. To Kathy earlier and to you, Susie, thank you so much for joining us on Wyoming Chronicle. Thank you. Funding for this program is made possible in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council, helping Wyoming take a closer look at life through the humanities, thinkwhy.org, and by the members of the Wyoming PBS Foundation. Thank you for your support.